Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. And unbeknown to me, although they're perfectly legal in the UK, they're classed as an illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan. And so from that moment forward, I was detained as a drug trafficker and and interrogated for several hours. Ultimately, I was detained for five days uh, in, in Uzbekistan. I was taken down to the Afghan border. I, was, I had loads of urine samples taken. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review if you've enjoyed the show so far. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, I talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But what is left for the adventurers and explorers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. My next guest is an adventurer and professional expedition leader. He has spent the last decade embarking upon intrepid adventures across the world. In the winter of 2016, he traveled overland by any means and loan from Hong Kong to Istanbul along the 8,000-mile mountainous spine of Asia, crossing 11 countries and climbing 14 mountains in midwinter. And today on the podcast, we talk about some of his incredible expeditions around the world. So, I am delighted to introduce Oli France to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to join you today. Well, it's absolutely great to have you on. I mean, you've been to so many countries. Your time traveling has taken you over to 70-odd countries. You've been from Hong Kong to Istanbul, Serbia, Iraq, the Congo, and I can't wait to sort of jump into it. But I always like to sort of start at the beginning and sort of try and understand how you sort of got into this sort of line of work, all these adventures. Yeah, absolutely. So... This has been this has been sort of a, a lifelong journey to, to to get to this stage really, and it was I, I grew up in a in a in a small town in northern England and was really only introduced to the outdoors at the age of sixteen. I went on this outward bound weekend and did climbing for the first time. Got instantly hooked off the back of that. I signed up to a three year university degree course in outdoor leadership. Uh, which is, believe it or not, an actual degree. And really, that was the start of it all. And I was just hooked. Uh, this degree course gave me, gave me uh, the opportunity to learn from some of the best instructors in the UK in, in the fields of mountaineering, rock climbing, canoeing, kayaking. They encouraged us to go off and travel in our summers. And um, ever since then, I've been trying through, through various means to just forge this, this career in adventure and um, I'm absolutely loving every minute of it. Wow, because I know that you are 
is sort of around the Lake District. Uh, is that sort of the place where you, your sort of grounding for these adventures sort of happened? Or was it more of a punt somewhere around the world, flick a map and you were like, right, I'm doing that to there? Well, I suppose it, it was it was quite a close link between those two because, yes, at the age of 16, I went and had my first experience in the outdoors and got hooked. Uh, and then the age of 17, I remember, and, you know, just to give context, I've, you know, managed to fit in a lot of travels in, in the time since then. But starting out, I had no idea what I was doing, no idea whatsoever. And I remember I just passed my driver's test so I had this beaten up old car. I, my girlfriend and I, we went up to try and climb the highest mountain, you know, Scarfell Pike in, in the Lake District. I had no clue what I was doing. I was wearing a big, thick ski jacket, you know, sweating like crazy. I even took um, took these little collapsible chairs up with me because I thought, well, where are we going to sit? And I distinctly remember going up that mountain, you know, having a horrible time, not knowing what I was doing at all. And yet all these people coming past me looked so comfortable and content and they were breezing along they had the right kit and i thought i want to get to the stage where i'm as comfortable in these harsh conditions as they are and that was a light bulb moment for me i realized that i needed to go and do the training do the work learn from experts and yeah push myself out into more of those environments and well, uh, yeah through uh, were the deck chairs used uh, at the top of Skullfair Pike? <laughs> well, we would have got them out on the top, but we didn't make it, which is hardly surprising because, um, yes, we I couldn't navigate at that stage. It was The cloud was coming in. It was raining. As I say, that whole thing was a calamity. Uh, but, you know, I'm probably not the, the first person to to have made these big mistakes. Uh, the important thing is is figuring out how not to make them again. And so from there, you, um, we always, always uh, failure is the best way of learning. But from there, you, I suppose, probably had bigger plans to sort of travel the world. Yeah, that's right. And and right uh, from my time at university, I, I wanted to get out, get out there. You know, I'd grown up with this map on my on my bedroom wall, and I was obsessed with the world and reading about it, learning about it, reading adventure books. And so I went off and worked in America one summer and the next summer I wanted to push things a little further. So I'd learned a bit of Arabic. I went out to uh, Lebanon at the age of I think 19, uh, spent about six weeks out there living with a local family. And that was, you know, that was an eye opener. Lebanon was was just coming out of a war. I was planning to go into Syria at the time. That that was just all kicking off with the, the Arab Spring. Um, following year, went over to Uganda, then went and did a, a big gap year after after university. And I just could not get enough. Um, things did change though when I got back into the UK uh, after all of those travels and kind of checked my bank account and thought. Oh, you know, maybe I need to get a proper job at last, like everybody's been telling me. And so I did that unfortunate classic thing of just falling into a job, which I really didn't enjoy. Uh, I was selling kitchens or at least trying to sell them, but I was absolutely hopeless. And, you know, I had it in, in many ways. It was a great job. The, the, the wage was good. It was a, a, 
a nice bonus scheme. I had a company car, a phone, a laptop. You know, I had the freedom to work from home, to work on my own schedule. I had very little pressure from my boss. It sounds like the dream job, but I'd never been as miserable in my life because all of this excitement from adventure and from travel had just disappeared. It had vanished. And for two years, I worked that job completely miserable. And so it got to the point where I realized if I'm going to carry on um, trying to forge a career in adventure, I, I really need to do something about it. And so what I did, I quit my job with nothing else lined up whatsoever. Uh, it was terrible timing. I had um, a house renovation uh, ongoing. I was just about to get married. I had no prospect of any future work, but I quit the job and decided to embark on probably what remains my biggest and most ambitious adventure to date. And I planned to journey from Hong Kong to Istanbul alone in the middle of winter, traveling by any means across the mountain spine of Asia and climbing at least one mountain in each country visited. And, uh, and in yeah, the, the start of 2016, that was what I set out to do. Wow. So that sort of journey, was there any, what was the planning like for that trip? For Hong Kong to Istanbul after you'd quit your job, how did it all sort of come about from the idea to the first day in Hong Kong? Yeah, good question. And very much simple concept. It's point A to point B. Um, and yeah, that, that's what I knew. That, that was the, the premise of the trip. But then I realized, oh, there's, there's so many intricacies to this. There's so many different routes you could take. Uh, different countries you could go through there's bureaucratic issues visa you know visas you need to pick up etc um, and of course the big issue was actually trying to raise the funding for it at a time when as i say i was i was going through the house renovation had a, had a wedding coming up and uh, had to quit my job so what my focus started to be on was was fundraising for the trip so i managed to to talk up talk in some local sponsors got a bit of local newspaper coverage, um, worked with a couple of local schools, you know, gradually managed to build up some funds um, to such an extent that actually the planning took rather a back step. And so about 10 minutes before I was due to fly out to, or sorry, be picked up to go to the airport to Hong Kong, uh, I was still stood, I think, in my underpants, in my underwear, in, in the kitchen, ironing these sponsor labels onto my T-shirt and, you know, cramming last items in my bag. So it wasn't the perfect planning and preparation situation. Um, but then there I was in Hong Kong a few hours later with a bag of stuff, with a plan. I knew where I needed to go. It was 8,000 miles away on the other side of a continent. I had some basic ideas of... of visas and how I could travel about but really it was a case of let's just see where this journey takes me I didn't have an exact route in mind I wanted to be free and open to possibilities to changing plans and I think actually for this particular trip having that flexible approach really did pay dividends and it allowed me to just experience so many things which I could just say yes to at the click of a finger and go off and have these little extraordinary side adventures how did the fiance take it yeah 
<laughs> well, you know, I told you I was rubbish at selling kitchens. You know, I probably missold this trip as well because when she asked me how long it was going to take, I kind of scratched my head and said, "Well, about six weeks." Uh, it turned out to be almost four months. So yeah, it, it was. Um, it required a bit of some some difficult conversations, but luckily I do have a very supportive wife, and uh, the the wedding did go ahead when I made it back some months later. I'm glad to say. So starting in Hong Kong, what was the sort of route to Istanbul? Because you were climbing every mountain in every region. You went from Hong Kong into China, and then sort of what down Tajikistan through a loop down through Vietnam and Laos back up into China, through the northern part of Tibet, all the way across China, Central Asia, and then across over into the Caucasus uh, countries and Turkey to Istanbul. That was uh, that was the route. Oh, wow. And so climbing every mountain, were you guided on these mountain trips or were you just going it alone? So the majority of the treks I was doing solo couple of them were guided for for different reasons. Uh, so in, in Vietnam, for example, I was climbing the highest mountain, Fancy Pan. Uh, it's, it's virtually impossible to get access to the mountain without a local guide. And, and actually, you know, sometimes having those local guides really does add to the experience. And it's something I do a lot of now is, is employ local guides with, with that expert knowledge, um, because that really can be invaluable, can help you get in, in tricky situations. Other times it was it was a case of taking a look at a mountain range. Say I was in Almaty in Kazakhstan, for example. You've got the Tien, the northern part of the Tian Shan Mountains just to the south. Just an enormous mass of, of huge white snow-capped mountains. And I actually met a, a local mountain guide there, get, got some advice from them. They suggested a mountain. And for the next few days, I went off and did it and bivvied up on a three and a half thousand meter ridge and just had this extraordinary solo adventure um, certainly wasn't without its risks but uh, but yeah it was just on a wing and a prayer taking it taking big risks you know being bold getting it out in the mountains and uh, trying to achieve that goal that I'd set for myself I think we ha- we had Harrison Carter on last week and he was all the week before and he was basically saying the va- how valuable it can be to take a guide. I mean, a lot of the time people think, oh, I need to go it alone because it, it'll be about me. But actually how valuable it is for getting local knowledge about where to go, what are the best bits. And sometimes they show you things which you would otherwise miss. This is, this is something which I absolutely agree with. And, and it's, it's, abs- it's something which... I stick with now personally. I do always, always find a local expert, a local guide, or have some kind of local support, uh, especially when going into more volatile or, or risky, high-risk areas. That that layer of, of security that they give you, no matter how much research you do, you know, on your on your laptop, having that local expert who knows where you can and can't go, any things that you should be looking out for, where your water sources could be that source of local knowledge it's there you just need to find that person who can give it to you and to to ignore that you know you're going to be making things harder for yourself Um, and often as you say it just adds to the adventure 
Um, we can be obsessed with doing everything ourselves. And I certainly was guilty of that when I first got into travel. But um, the more I've traveled, yes, having those local contacts has just proved to be totally invaluable. Was there a good example along that trip where you sort of, their knowledge became sort of essential? Yeah, so I'll give, I'll give one example. I was, in, I was in Tajikistan and I was in, I was in capital Dushanbe and I was looking for my mountain my Tajik mountain. Of course, Tajikistan is full of mountains. I think about 90% of the country is over 3000 meters. So there's really no shortage of mountains, but I wanted something interesting. And I'd read in, in the museum, actually, I just went in there one day and saw this tiny note about these fossilized dinosaur footprints, which could be found near this remote mountain village in Tajikistan. And that's all it was, one sentence. I did some reading online. There was virtually nothing available. And then it just so happened that that evening I spoke to somebody whose family was from this very remote village. And she said, if you want to go there, I'll take you. Come with me the next day. And so we jumped in this shared taxi. You know, we traveled for a couple of hundred miles across the country to make it to this uh, to this very remote small settlement in the mountains I went around speaking to the villagers about this, um, about this idea of these fossilized dinosaur footprints. Some people believed me, some people didn't. Some said, oh yes, I've heard about that. Ultimately, we, uh, we got a few people together and we went off and ventured out into the mountains. After several hours of trekking, we came across this enormous 50 or 60 meter cliff uh, embedded on which were hundreds of fossilized dinosaur footprints. And it was one of the most extraordinary journeys. And without that local guide, without that local expertise, there is no way I would have stumbled across that remote cliff uh, near this uh, near this far off village in Tajikistan. So yes, they can just be a gateway to these really extraordinary uh, next level experiences. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you. I remember on one of my trips i was heading across america and heading towards salt lake city and at the time my american knowledge was next to nothing and i was heading to salt lake city i stopped off at this place called jeffrey city and i was at a bar speaking to one of the bikers there he was like where are you going i said salt lake city he said oh you don't want to go there i was like well why not and he was like, you take a detour and head towards sort of Jackson Hole. And like, I didn't know what Jackson Hole was at the time. And anyway, from there, it's sort of Jackson Lake, the Teton Mountains. I went through them all. And it was the most sort of spectacular, one of the most spectacular places in America. But just by that sort of one chat with the local, changed my entire route across America. And just going going with local knowledge, I think is so important on some of these trips. Yeah, totally agree. And so you sort of went through, what, 40, about 11 different countries on your route. Some of them probably quite sort of, what sort of year are we talking with this? So this was 2016. Because you're going through probably because I was in Central Asia three years ago, you're going through quite some quite closed off countries. Did you have any issues along the way with those countries? So 
Yes, the, the big one that springs to mind is, is when I crossed over into Uzbekistan. And it was interesting because I'd spent, I'd spent my time traveling through Central Asia and, you know, I'd, I'd heard whispers of this, this drug trafficking trade coming up from Afghanistan. Afghanistan accounts for about 95% of the world's heroin supply. And much of that goes up through Central Asia. So it's very sensitive for that particular issue. Layered on top of that, Uzbekistan is a, a very strict dictatorship. And um, so I knew that I had to be careful on, on going there. As I crossed the border from Tajikistan, it was, it was late at night. I was the only person crossing the border. I've been warned, just be careful in Uzbekistan. And sure enough, as I got into the border, they stamped my passport, then took me into this other room and said, okay, we need your phone, your camera, your laptop. We want to look at everything in your bag and we're going to do a full body search. And, and that, was, that was that for the next two hours. So they scrolled through every file on my laptop, looking, looking at my phone. As I say, did a full body search. It seemed to be all going fine. And then in my rucksack, they found my first aid kit, which contained some cocodamol tablets, which essentially strong painkillers. And unbeknown to me, although they're perfectly legal in the UK, they're classed as an illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan. And so from that moment forward, I was detained as a drug trafficker and, and interrogated for several hours. Ultimately, I was detained for five days uh, in, in Uzbekistan. I was taken down to the Afghan border. I, was, I had loads of urine samples taken. You know, there was all kinds of strict measures imposed on me. Ultimately, I, I was driven out to this what turned out to be an ex-KGB um, military post and there offered two options. It was either 30 days in jail or a pay a hefty fine. And uh, let's just say it was the best $500 I've ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you know anything about the Uzbek currency, the biggest banknote is worth about 50p. So to get $500 worth, I ended up with a carrier bag full of cash which I was taking into this remote military outpost to pay my way out of jail. And so, I mean, it, it was this crazy story. After I paid the fine, I did get my passport back and, and the guard actually said to me, okay, you're free to leave Uzbekistan now. But I had no intention of leaving. I, I wanted to carry on my journey. Uh, luckily, I befriended the interpreter who'd been helping me. And he helped me to get into a taxi, which took me way up to the remote part of the mountains there in Uzbekistan. And there I would, uh, I would carry on my journey. Um, but that was only after being followed by police, having policemen spy through my bedroom windows and uh, ultimately taking a 500 mile journey across the country, changing taxis in every town to try and evade the police and uh, <laughs> get myself out of the country. So that, that was quite the adventure really. Um, yeah, so Uzbekistan stays quite high in my memory. I'm sure. Uh, it, um, I have to say, I, I loved Uzbekistan when I went. I think it had some amazing people and such beautiful architecture. Um, but I didn't, you didn't get the chance to sort of see the mountainous region, which is something I might look back on. But these sort of adventures sort of took you, have taken you all over the world. I mean, you've been to over 70 odd countries. 
And you're one of your recent ones was in Siberia, probably on a more different. It seems that you quite like the cold and the mountainous regions. Uh, so Siberia was 60 days, 16 days uh, walking across the lake up there. How, how did that trip come about? So this was Lake Baikal, which yeah is, is located in Siberia, just north of Mongolia. And it is the, the world's largest freshwater lake. And every winter, because of the extreme temperatures there, the entire lake surface freezes over. And a couple of years before the trip, I'd seen some images of this ice. And it was just extraordinary, filled with these cracks and bubbles and formations. I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, trip inspiration comes from all kinds of different places. But for me, for this one, it was just this image of this extraordinary ice. And, and so I, I started to think about a journey there. And, you know, as I did my research, I, grant, I, I gradually grew to appreciate the true scale of this lake. It's, it's just over 400 miles long, which is about the distance from London to Edinburgh. It contains a third of the world's fresh water. It's that big, and it's also a mile deep, making it the world's deepest lake. So it is just this massive expanse of, of ice. And I'd heard of a few people going out there and doing these treks along the surface of this ice in the winter. And so that was what I set out to do. Um, and so it would be a 405 mile journey. It would be fully solo, self-supported, and dragging all of my stuff in, in a, a 60 kilogram sled. Uh, yes, which contains the tent, the, my sleeping bag, my stoves, my fuel, my safety equipment, everything I needed to survive on that lake uh, for 16 days. And what sort of temperatures are we talking about here? So in the real depths of winter, it can get down to around minus 40. Uh, when I was there, it was a little later in the season. So you tend to wait until around early March when the, the lake is completely frozen. But still the temperatures, the air temperature was around minus 20 uh, at night. And then when you add to that, the, the often gale force winds, it, uh, it really is quite cold up there for sure. Yeah. Wow. And so 16 days without seeing anyone, what was the sort of scenery like there? For people who are listening, it's probably quite difficult to sort of explain, but what's the sort of feelings and the scenery that you have when you're out alone on this freshwater lake? Well, the most profound thing really, and the thing that takes a long time to get used to is just being on the ice. You know, that constant knowledge that if you were to, to make the wrong step on a particular bad patch, you could potentially go through the ice. But this surface, it is like a living beast. And you have this island called Olken Island, which has some shamans living on it. And they regard Lake Baikal as, as a living beast. And having spent time there, I can totally understand what they mean because it is constantly moving, cracking, shifting, banging. Uh, there are these pressure ridges which form, which might be you know, four or five meter high, just jumbles of ice. You get these great big, uh, channels of open water which you need to overcome uh, and as I say you know even when you're sleeping in your tent at night on the ice because I, I did camp on the ice using ice screws to secure my tent to the ice uh, you're lying with your face just inches away from the ice and it is constantly 
shuddering and tremoring and banging and it really is quite quite disturbing and and uh, unsettling and yeah no matter how long you're there you you never fully get used to that sensation of um okay m- my life is at the mercy of this at this uh, of this ice underneath me uh, beside the ice you've got a very very mountainous area right around the lake particularly in the northern part and up there it is just pristine beauty i remember one day often it was stormy and and windy but one day it was beautiful conditions blue sky no wind whatsoever just a nice thin layer of snow on the ice and i sat down on my pulk at lunchtime and i don't think i've ever heard silence like it because there's virtually no wildlife up there either especially at that time you know most of it would be hibernating or migrate away and it was just total total silence nobody around for perhaps 100 miles um that was a really special moment Wow, it sounds absolutely incredible. And so food, are you dehydrated foods? Are you drilling holes in the lake to try and catch fish? I would have loved to try that. And actually, (laughs) near a couple of towns, you do see people doing that. And they have an amazing setup with these huge tents and wood-burning stoves and plenty of vodka, no doubt, because I was offered some on occasions. Um, But yes, my my diet was much more along the, the... you know, the idea of, of squeezing as many, many calories as possible into as little weight as possible. So it was dehydrated meals. It was big blocks of cheese, flapjacks, uh, cooked meats, chocolate, nuts. Um, I would also use sort of meal replacement powders, which are just a quick hit of calories. So I was consuming around four and a half to 5,000 calories a day. And then towards the end, closer to six and six, six and a half thousand calories. Um, and that would condense down into about a kilo of food per day. And I budgeted for 20 days, so 20 kilos of food. The good news is as you go on, your sled is getting gradually lighter as you eat your way through that, uh, that enormous stash of food. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the best way of sort of doing it, I feel. Um, but I imagine the idea of sitting under a tent with a warm stove fishing must have been quite tempting at times yes yeah it would have been uh, it would have been quite a cool little experience and so from this this is sort of what's propelled you into this idea well the sort of guiding as your sort of career in adventure really hasn't it it's these sort of mini trips is sort of cemented your passion for the great outdoors yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So particularly after this big Asian expedition in 2016, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd always done bits of work with other people, coaching and, you know, guiding at a lower level. And more and more, you know, I, I was tempted to move away from these solo experiences and just share the mountains and the great outdoors with other people, because that, that is really an extraordinary experience in itself seeing new places and new experiences through other people's eyes, seeing the joy they get from those, those travel experiences and having the privilege of, of being their guide. And so, yes, I decided to really dedicate myself to, to trying to achieve that as a career, picked up some extra qualifications as a winter mountain leader and really cut my teeth by just getting out there and, and leading 
tours and expeditions right across the globe. And, and they've taken me now to uh, 22 countries. I've guided people through right across Asia and Africa, uh, including some, some quite unusual destinations like Iraq and Somalia and Yemen and Congo. And all the time meeting countless fascinating people from all walks of life, from various nationalities. And really now that has become my big passion and something which I'm very, very excited to get back to in 2022, uh, now that this COVID thing is blowing over. Yes, one hopes. Um, so Iraq, I know that you've been there quite a few times. What makes you go back again and again? What is it about Iraq that's so appealing? Yeah, I get this question quite a bit because, of course, Iraq is not known as a tourist destination, particularly. It's... Um, you know, all you all you tend to read, of course, about Iraq are, are negative news headlines. And and I had found time and again when I've been to places such as Iraq is, you know, people living normal lives, starting businesses, having families, that's not newsworthy. So you don't hear, hear about it. Yet in these countries, you've got millions of people doing exactly that. You know, yes, there may be these extraordinary incidents that you know, that are terrible and do happen occasionally. Uh, but, you know, if you're careful with the right guides, you can avoid that. And Iraq was one of these places that I do remember having a particular degree of, you know, hesitation about going to. You know, I sign, you sign up to these trips uh, in a nice, comfortable living room at home. You know, it's just uh, answer, answering a yes on an email often or something like that. And then it's very different feeling to fly into that country, looking down on, you know, what has been a war-torn country for years. But actually what I found very quickly was when I got into Iraq, it is one of the most spectacularly hospitable, kind, generous, warm places that I've ever visited. And everybody who I've taken there has said the same thing. And so, yeah, I do have a, a real strong connection with, with the country now, particularly the northern part, the northern Kurdish part, where I've spent um, most of my time. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating place which breaks down all of those stereotypes. Um, and I did want to try and push things a little further, which uh, I think I mentioned to you before about this idea of going out and trying to climb the highest mountain in Iraq which to that point had, had actually only been done by a handful of foreign uh, foreign climbers. God, I know. Um, there, I, th I think you're so right with that. So many times people hear these sort of stories of these countries and they only see one side. And as you say, on a day-to-day, 99% -day, are just getting on with their lives, doing pretty much what we do on a day-to-day, -day, get up, go to work, you know, family, food, whatever it is, that's their day-to-day, -day, just like us. But of course, the media sort of quite often portrays some of these countries in such a negative light. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it is just a case of, well, let's go and see it for myself. And, you know, that's, that's often the, the best proof, um, just seeing something for yourself, making those human connections which no matter where you go, no matter the language barriers, it's possible to build those amazing human connections and to communicate and to laugh and to share stories. Like I say, even if you don't speak the same language, it's possible. And that for me is also yeah, one of the most extraordinary things about travel. 
on your sort of guiding expeditions, what other parts of the world um, have you sort of visited where you've sort of come into such incredible hospitality and the kindness of strangers? Well, Central Asia is certainly up there, as I mentioned, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. And other than that, yeah, I would say Iran has got to be up there. You know, I'd, I'd been, Iran had been on the list for, for years, and I know you've been there as well. And all I'd heard from everybody about Iran was, it is the friendliest place you'll ever go to. And, you know, it, it's hard to argue with that, having been there. Um, just this extraordinary warmth from, from the people in the country. And, you know, it's not unusual to get invited into people's homes, to get, uh, you know, offered cups of tea and to, to you know, constantly be bombarded for selfies. Um, yeah, Iran is a fascinating and amazing place. And again, that's where that separation comes in of, of politics and people. You know, often we, we judge countries based on their politics, but forget about that. You know, it's all about the people and 99% of people, wherever you go, whatever their religion, are good. And, you know, time and again, I've found that to be true. Yeah, I I had such an amazing experience in sort of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. I remember in Tajikistan, we were in like the Wakan Corridor. And for anyone who hasn't been there, it's like two mountains either side and you go through the sort of corridor. And anyway, we were looking for a place to camp. So we went up onto the sort of slight escarpment at the top. And as we were there sort of unpacking, thinking we're in the middle of nowhere, suddenly these kids run out and the father runs out. Father didn't run, sorry. Walks out. And um, and we were like, oh God, now we're going to be kicked off or anything. And anyway, we get sort of chatting and he's like, come in, come and have supper with us. You know, don't pitch your tent there on the rocks, come pitch it on the grass. And we just had the most amazing night there with them. And you know, they showed us around, told us where to go. And it's just these little experiences that you get along the way that make such an amazing experience of travel and everything that goes with it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And sometimes the, the most powerful word is hello. It is making that introduction, you know, because we can stare at each other and figure each other out a little bit. And sometimes there's cultural differences, um, you know, in terms of how you would approach a stranger. But just breaking down that barrier with a hello, you know, that can just lead to these extraordinary experiences like you've described. Yeah. And you've also said that you've been sort of the Congo, Somalia. Somalia is an interesting one because... One, I don't know a lot about it, but probably for people listening, they'd be really interested to sort of know what what sort of guided tours or what you were doing over there. Yeah, so Somalia is very interesting. And, and yes, that is a, a genuinely unstable place. Um, it's a very, very tribal country. So you get large expanses of the country which are controlled by various tribes. Uh, in the northern part, you've you got the southern part, which, you know, you've got Mogadishu down there, the capital. That is, without question, very dangerous. And you know, I know people who have been there, uh, you know, typically they'd have five or six armed guards around them at all times. I've not been there and don't have any intentions of, uh, of going there. But up in the northern part, you've got Puntland, which is, again, slightly less volatile. And then Somaliland, which is 
uh, a region, yeah, at, at the northern part, which um, backs onto the, the Red Sea. And that's been a semi-autonomous uh, state for, for a number of years now. They're, they're trying to get their own recognition as, as a separate country. And compared to the rest of the country, it is a fairly safe place to go. And it's got some really fascinating sites. And so one of, one of the big things was um, a place called Last Gale, which sits way out in the Somali desert. You have to drive for hours to get there. But what it is, is this enormous cave structure, which contains hundreds of these prehistoric um, human rock art paintings. And this has actually only been discovered a number of years ago. And I've been out there twice now with groups. There's also a fishing port that you can go to. Uh, but the, this cave is just extraordinary. And for me, it, it sort of, it's a metaphor for this idea that often exploration, you know, we think about the poles and we think about the Himalayas and big mountains. But there's another, there's another sort of angle to, to exploration, I feel, which is these places which have been cut off for so many generations through war, through dictatorship, which contain these real gems that nobody has explored before, nobody has seen before. And yeah, I can, I can think of a small handful of places just like that. You know, another one would be the, the Yemeni island of Socotra, which I was lucky to go to uh, last year. Just these amazing little gems which get no tourism whatsoever. Yes, they're hard to get to. Yes, you need to be careful and take local guides with you. But they are some of the most extraordinary places on the planet. Amazing. God, it sounds just so incredible. And you're so right, the sort of idea of exploration. A lot of people put it into a sort of narrow box or a narrow idea of adventure and exploration, but it can be so much more than that. And yeah, it's just awesome to sort of hear your stories and hear such amazing, amazing stories from such, you know, misunderstood countries in a sense yeah yeah that's that is really where my my passion lies now is just just pushing the boundaries and and trying as hard as possible to forget those stereotypes of course thinking about safety safety and planning for that and um, planning for it very extensively but pushing beyond those stereotypes and, and getting out to places that most people don't aren't willing to visit Oh, well, Oli, thank you so much for sort of coming on and sharing those stories. Uh, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, with the first being on these sort of trips and expeditions, what's the one gadget that you always take with you? Yeah, you might have had this one before. This, is, this would be my Garmin InReach, which is a, a satellite tracking device. It allows you to communicate with the outside world. It's got a great big sos button which you hope never to press but it's there if you need it i've traveled without that and got myself into hairy situations but having that as as um, a backup layer safety buffer to me it's invaluable and i would recommend it to anyone going out into into the wilds yeah we we had one when we went across um central asia uh, and you can also track exactly where you've been and so it's also good to sort of show other people where you are at any given time uh, what about your favorite adventure or travel book uh 
this is a very tough one because I really do love adventure adventure books. Uh, one I read recently, which is probably not too well known, but I would recommend to anyone, um, is called 438 Days by Jonathan Franklin. And it is this incredible tale of survival. It's, without giving too much away, a Honduran, um, Honduran guy who found himself in Mexico working as a fisherman out in a storm. Everything gets swept over overboard. His motor cuts out, and then there he is with his inexperienced crewmate in a boat with only a little bit of food. And, and then this is his story floating across the Pacific Ocean for, yeah, you guessed it, 438 days. But, yeah, what an amazing story about survival. I believe it's going to be made into a TV show or film, but I would fully recommend getting your hands on that book and reading it. Very inspiring. Um, why are adventures important to you? For me, and, and probably for many people on your podcast, it is just my lifeblood. I, I thrive off it. When I've had long periods without adventure, uh, you know, I really, really miss it and I crave it. And, you know, probably the bigger reason, you know, we only have one opportunity or, you know, this thing called life. And so I just want to grab it with both hands and to just have an amazing ride and to not have any regrets and to get out there and see as much of this amazing planet as I possibly can. Favorite quote? Uh, so this comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost, and it is, our mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Essentially, that means that whatever situations we find ourselves in, we can use our own perspective to make that a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that's a really useful thing to keep in mind often in hard situations, in, in expeditions or in life. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's a good one. I like that. Uh, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of trips and expeditions like yourself. What's the one thing that you would recommend for people wanting to get started? The big one is just start, just start. And I speak to so many people who say, oh, I've got this big plan to eventually do this. And I just need to shuffle some things around, just need to after this job. And I just ask them, if not now, then when? You know, it's just a case of just starting, just go, just go and do something. It doesn't need to be the biggest, most expensive dream expedition, first of all. Just get out the front door, go climb a mountain, go meet some people, go have a micro adventure, just start, get stuck into it, learn things along the way, build your way up, learn, learn from experts if you possibly can and have a great time doing it. But just start, that is the key. Yeah, very true. I think quite a lot of people have said that when people just sort of say, oh, I'm going to do this and do that, you know, you just stand there and be like, okay, well, I, I believe you, go, go and do it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Make it happen. Yeah. Uh, finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow you in the future? Uh, so as I say, things are hopefully looking up for 2022. I've got a number of, uh, of trips planned and also very excited to launch my own expedition company, Wild Edge, where I'll be guiding people on, uh, on remote and wild adventures across the world. So please do come and say hi. I'm at Ollie underscore France on Instagram. And uh, you can follow all my updates there and hopefully join me on an adventure sometime. And it's wildedge.com? Uh, wild-edge.org.uk. Uh, amazing. Um, so, Ollie, 
can't thank you enough for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories. And as I say, you've got quite a number of trips and expeditions lined up for 2022. So we'll be following along, following your journey. And thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks very much, John. It's been, been an absolute pleasure to connect with you and, uh, and I've had a great conversation. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.